It's been a few weeks, but we are picking our summer series back up, uh, looking at covenant theology, the various covenantal relationships between God and, and uh, mankind, particularly um, in, in the scriptures. And we are looking today at the covenant of works, taking for our text two passages in the opening of Genesis. So we're going to begin with Genesis chapter 1. Genesis one twenty six, and then we'll skip over to Genesis two, and uh, hopefully these will passages will help uh, illumine our understanding of of what the covenant of works is and why it matters, and it really does matter. Genesis one verse twenty six through twenty eight. Then God said, "Let us make man in our image, after our likeness." And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply And fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Chapter 2, verse 15, and 16, and 17. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. As far God's holy word to us. Heaven has to be earned. I want you to take that in, digest it. Maybe you can tell me later during Ask the Pastor what you think about it. I'm not going to take hands right now. But what do you think of that statement? Heaven has to be earned. For those, like most of us, from a Protestant Reformed ilk, we probably have some red flags going up. I mean, we're all about grace, 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 which is a good thing. And so when you talk about earning something, meriting something, we say, wait, that can't be right. I mean, isn't salvation all about grace alone? And of course it is. But when we're talking about salvation, well, well what are we implying? We're implying that we need to be saved from something. What is that something? We need to be saved from sin and from the effects of sin. And that, that's what it means to get from this fallen world to heaven. We're saved from this place infected with sin And we are taken to heaven, to glory, where we are free of those things. But what about before sin entered the world? Before salvation would even be a a, a concept that would mean anything. Salvation only makes sense in the context of a sinful world. What about before there was sin? How would we get from here to heaven? From the world that God created to the world that he intended his image bearers to to inhabit? And the answer is, heaven had to be earned. It had to be earned. 
The covenant of works tells us that answer. It places us as we study it back in the garden with Adam. And it shows us that God had a plan for Adam that was so much greater than the garden of Eden. We're going to need to keep that in mind because I think oftentimes we think, oh, if we could just get back to the garden, everything would be better. But God always had something better in mind than just the garden. Uh, God had a plan to get Adam from that garden to glorified life, to live in glory with God himself in perfect communion forevermore. Uh, a, a deeper, richer communion than he even knew in the garden. And how could Adam get there? He would have to earn it. He would have to work for it. And that's why in Reformed theology, it's in our confession of faith, we have this term, the covenant of works. God enters into relationship with humanity through Adam and says, you need to work to earn it, to, des- to merit it, to deserve it. Heaven has to be earned. It's an important truth to grasp because... I want to say this at the beginning. We'll come back to it later. It it is essential in our understanding of the gospel. It's essential in understanding what Christ did for us. Right? Heaven always has to be earned, even once sin enters the world. But the gospel tells us that what we could not earn, Christ did earn for us. And then he freely gives it to us as a gift. If we don't understand the covenant of works as kind of a foundational Um, as a starting point in theology, then we won't even fully appreciate this gospel truth. Heaven had to be earned before it could be given. So as we consider the covenant of works today, I want us to to note three different relationships uh, that that it teaches us about. As we read in Genesis, obviously the first relationship is between God and Adam. The covenant of works, uh, foundationally, fundamentally, was a relationship between God and and Adam. Adam is bound to God by covenant. That is, there's this, uh, this binding relationship between these two parties which necessitated Adam's obedience to God completely, entirely, always, perfectly, perpetually, personally. Oh, we don't see the word covenant in those opening chapters of Genesis, uh, but it's still abundantly clear that this kind of responsibility was placed on Adam. And we see it at least in two ways. Two ways that we can know that Adam's in a covenant relationship with God. The first is simply the fact that God made him, that he's his creature, that he's made in God's image. God created Adam with a particular purpose, to look like him. Let us make man in our own image. In other words, Adam was created with the goal of reflecting his maker, it's not exactly true of the rest of creation. Yes, we know Psalm 19 tells us that the heavens declare the glories of God. The sky proclaims his handiwork. It's true that the wonder of the world tells us something of the glory of God. But mankind does this in a way that is unlike anything else. Remember that God created the animals according to their kind. But he creates man according to his kind. According to his image. It's as though to look at humanity, you would actually see something of what God looks like. And since he was made in God's image, Adam knew inherently what was right and wrong. Our confession teaches us that to be made in God's image means we have the law of God written on our hearts. We just know what's right and wrong. We call it conscience a lot of times. But it means we don't even really need the Bible to tell us. We just know it innately. Um... My guess is, boys and girls, you can ask your parents this after church today, but my guess is if you ask your parents, do we have a copy of, of our town's legal code in, in, in our home somewhere, the answer is probably no. I, I'm guessing most of our 
families here don't own a copy of Kalamazoo's legal code or Plainwell or Portage, wherever you're living. And yet, even so, we kind of all know inherently, innately, what's accepted and what's not accepted in society. Certainly, law enforcement assumes that we have some understanding. That's why they hold us accountable to the law. Even if we say, well, I didn't know that. I didn't have a code written at home. They said, no, you live here. You know it. And so you, since you've broken the law, now you're accountable to it. In the same way, in the same way, Adam didn't need a written copy of God's law. The fact that he's made in God's image and he lives in God's garden, all of that's reason alone for Adam to know the responsibility that he had before God. Paul talks about this in Romans 2. He says, when the Gentiles, who don't own a copy of the law, in other words, they don't have the written book of the Bible, when they do what the law commands, they prove that they're law unto themselves. In other words, they have a conscience that tells them there are certain things we must do, and there are certain things that when we do them, we know it's really bad. Even though they don't have the Bible, they know this. Why? Because the law is written on all of our hearts. Because we're made in God's image. And so, Adam and we along with him are bound to God by covenant on the, on the, the sheer basis that we have been made by God. The second evidence that there's this works relationship or this obligation between Adam and his maker is that beyond what's written on his heart, God does give explicit verbal commands. There were four that we read of. First, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. Second, subdue the earth, have dominion over it. Third, we read in Genesis 2 that they should work and keep the garden. And fourth, a negative command, do not eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So, again, while we might not ever read that term covenant in these chapters, clearly there's a covenant operating. There's a relationship between Adam and God that binds Adam to fulfill these commands. God is the Lord Adam is the servant. If for no other reason than the fact that God was his maker, God can tell Adam what to do. He doesn't need further justification than this. There's a parallel in parenting, isn't there? Uh, When we're asked that inevitable question from our children, why, why, why? It's not always dismissive. And it's entirely legitimate at sometimes just to say, because I say so. Because I'm telling you, that's why. That's all the why you need to know. Now, that, that argumentation won't work in every situation. If you're called before a judge, I, I doubt that will work. Um, but for a parent-child relationship, it works just fine. Likewise, Adam is bound to obey God's word. Why? Because God says so. He says so. Because he's in the covenant uh, with him. God is the Lord. Adam's the servant. But... Wonderfully, in addition to these commands, there's a motivation given to Adam's obedience. Look at that in verse 17 of chapter 2. There's a promise of reward if Adam obeys. Verse 17 puts it negatively. Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it you will surely die. In Hebrew it's, it repeats the word die twice. So it would be something like you shall die a deadly death. It's an emphasis. It's not just any normal death. Um, Death was threatened in a a certain sense, a spiritual and eternal sense. But if we flip that, then what's the positive motivation for Adam to obey? That if he obeyed, he would live a, a, a lively life, not just normal life, but a spiritual 
life, a real life, eternal life, would be promised to Adam. That's why I say the garden wasn't just it. There was something better than the garden even. And that's what God promised if Adam obeyed that covenant of works, there would be glory to be had. This, this life with a capital L, real life. And it all centered around this probation of, of eating, not eating, of the tree, the knowledge of good and evil. In Hebrew, knowledge could be translated choosing. The tree of choosing good and evil, which maybe gets at it a little better. It shows us that, that here is this, there's this kind of pressure point put on Adam's uh, a responsibility in the garden. He had to do all those things, be fruitful, multiply, have dominion, garden, keep the garden. But then you need to make a choice when it comes to this tree. Will you choose not to eat it, which would be the right choice, or will you take of it, which is the wrong choice? If Adam made the right choice, well, then what would happen? Look at chapter 3 and verse 22. This is the, the promise of everlasting life. Chapter 3 and verse 22. There's another tree there, isn't it? Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man's become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and also take of the tree of life and eat and live forever. See, this is what Adam could have had. But because he disobeyed, God says, You can't have it. If he had made the right choice, this is what was promised to him. To go from the garden to glory. To live forever. But... If that old, wise knight from Indiana Jones was looking on at that moment, and Adam takes of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he would have said, he chose poorly. He chose poorly. There was a reward to be had if he obeyed, if he earned it, if he worked for it. We know the story. He fails. He chooses poorly. He's lured away by that wicked serpent who convinces Adam that he'd be better off apart from God, out on his own. I want you to keep in mind that really, it's the lie that this serpent feeds Adam more than the fruit. It's this lie. Now, why do we care? Well, because what Adam did had massive consequences to us, for us, for you and me. Which is another clue that the relationship between Adam and God was covenantal because it was a representative relationship. When people entered into covenants in the ancient Near East, they often did so with a representative. One person would stand in place of, of many people. Uh, common practice that one person comes as a representative of a larger body. Here we learn that Adam was meant to represent us, all of humanity, and his failure really affects us. So if we considered the relationship between a God and Adam. Now we want to consider the relationship between us and Adam. Even in Genesis 3, we see that Adam's actions affected more than, than just himself. There's pain in childbearing now forever. Humanity will toil and suffer. The creation itself comes under a curse. All because of what he did. Because of what he did. Now we could say, well, Eve too. And of course, there's truth in that statement. Uh, but when Paul talks about this and rehearses this in Romans 5, it's interesting. He never once mentions what Eve did. He places all of the guilt, all of the responsibility upon Adam as the covenant head. Here's what our shorter catechism says. Question 16. Did all mankind fall in Adam's first transgression? Answer. 
the covenant being made with Adam, not only for himself, but for his posterity, that means his children and those children that come after that, all mankind descending from him by ordinary generation sinned in him and fell with him in his first transgression. Paul is even punchier in Romans 5.18. One trespass led to condemnation for all men. One trespass condemns all humanity. Adam stood as our representative and failed. One, one small misstep for a man, a giant fall for mankind, we could say. And we're condemned because of what our representative did. Or I should say what he failed to do. Now, some people would protest that that's not very fair, is it? Why should I be punished for what somebody else did? Maybe you're thinking that yourself. This just doesn't seem just. But, of course, we don't make that same uh, protest. We don't follow that same logic, uh, logic anytime we're watching sports, right? When a striker scores a goal in soccer, the team doesn't say, well, don't give us the point. Just give him or her the point. You know, we didn't deserve it. When a linebacker is called for offsides, the entire team takes a penalty, not just that individual player. Nobody protests because it's just the rules. It's the way it works. Likewise, when Adam broke the covenant of works, it plunged team humanity into failure. Those were the rules. Those were the rules. Do you understand that today? There's, uh, there's something that's, that's so important, so fundamental about understanding our condition And how we get out of it by first grasping what it means to be connected to Adam in the garden, to be guilty in Adam. The New England uh, primer was the first reading primer designed for the American colonies back in the 1760s. It became the most successful educational textbook and, um, uh, or no, that was the late 1600s actually, by... um, the 1790s, it was used in almost every schooling system in America. Some of its popularity has remained today. It's where we get the little nighttime prayer. Um, As I lay me down to sleep, I pray the Lord my soul to keep. That comes from that New England primer. But there's a section in the primer that, that's used to teach children the alphabet. And it, it does so using these rhyming couplets um, next to a little picture that illustrates it. So, for example... D has a picture of a dog, and the couplet is, um, a dog will bite a thief in the night. Or for N, there's a picture of a bird, nightingales sing in the time of spring. You get the idea. Okay, so we get to the letter A, and there's a picture of a man uh, holding an apple. A is for apple, right? No. A is for, in Adam's fall, sinned we all. I don't think you're going to find that in a school textbook today. Isn't it interesting that the very first thing children learned using that primer was that all humanity is under condemnation and curse because of Adam's sin. Not because of their personal sins, that certainly adds to it, but because of Adam's sin. They're, they're learning about the covenant of works. And this is one of the most basic theological lessons, so it makes sense that we start there with the letter A. In Adam's fall, sinned we all. We need to understand the ramifications of this covenant because it sets the stage for understanding the covenant of grace or, or the gospel. If we don't understand 
what happens here in the garden, we will not understand salvation. Why is that? Well, because according to the Apostle Paul, to understand salvation, you need to know the relationship uh, of another pair. We've looked at God and Adam and us and Adam, but to really understand salvation, you need to know Adam and Christ and their connection, their relationship. We've seen that Adam was bound to God in the garden by way of obedience, given the promise of life and glory, and he failed. We saw, secondly, that his failure affects all of us. The world doesn't work right because of the curse of sin. We could say that from from every headache to every heartache, it all goes back to what Adam failed to do in the garden, namely to obey God, to listen to his word. And so how can all that change? The answer that the Bible gives us is that we need another Adam, a new Adam, a better Adam, a second Adam, a last Adam. This is Paul's language. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians here, and we're wrapping up. And we want to look to some New Testament passages in closing. 1 Corinthians 15. And let's look at verses 20 through 23 first. But in fact, verse 20, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, that is Adam, by a man, that is Jesus, has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Skip down to verse 45 of the same chapter. Thus it is written, the first. Adam, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. The reference there, Adam became a living being. God breathed into him the breath of life, and he became a living being. He was alive, but then there's kind of a wordplay here. But with Christ, he comes, yes, as a living being. He's alive, but he comes to give life. Adam took life from God. Christ gives life from God. But it's not the spiritual that is first, but the natural. And then the spiritual. The first man, Adam, was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. Glory. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, Adam, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven, Jesus. Do you see what what Paul's saying here? He's saying, All of humanity kind of can be split into two groups, falls under one of two representatives. Uh, You're either under the first Adam or you're under the last Adam. If you belong to the first Adam, well, then you are of the dust. But if you want to get from this world, this dusty, deserty place to glory, then you must belong to the man of heaven, Jesus Christ. Those are the only two options. Christ is called the second Adam because... There has been no other mediator between Adam and Jesus. He is the last Adam because there will be no mediator after Jesus. He is the one that we need. So which one do you belong to? The one who takes you back to the dust from whence you came or the one who takes you to where you need to get going? Glory. Who do you want to belong to? Do you want to belong to the one who has brought death or the one who brings 
life. Now, we ask this question, what makes Christ a worthy mediator? What makes him able to be a life-giving spirit, to bring life to us? How can it be said that he is the second Adam, that he's the last Adam? Why does Paul use this imagery? Where does he get it from? Is he just being clever? You know, is this just some kind of, some clever theologizing? No, Paul got this from the Bible. He knew his Bible. It's in the Bible. If you read the Gospels, Jesus is presented to us as a second and a better Adam. It's right there in Matthew 4. You know the story. Matthew 4 is the start of Jesus' ministry. And where does Jesus' ministry begin, his public ministry? It begins in a desert, in the wilderness, where God sends him by his spirit out into the wilderness where he's fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. And who shows up? The serpent. In a different, in a different form now. But, but the devil, the same character as we saw in Genesis 3. And he's doing, what's he doing? The very same thing, isn't he? What's he trying to do? Trying to convince God's son that life would be better for him to go his own way. He's offering Jesus the same thing that he offered Adam and Eve. To take and eat. Right? For them it was this fruit. For Jesus, you know, you could turn those stones to bread. Why don't you just eat? Why don't you just be satisfied? The similarities and the parallels between the stories of Genesis 3 and Matthew 4 are striking. Uh, but so are their differences. And there are two key differences between those stories. The first difference is where they take place. Adam encounters the serpent in the Garden of Eden, this land of blessing, this land of perfection. He's lacking nothing. He had everything at his disposal. In other words, he had everything going for him. He had no reason whatsoever to be lured away, to be tempted by the serpent. And yet he still fails. But we compare that to the situation which Jesus encounters Satan in a barren landscape in a desert, which is a symbol for the entire world post-fall. This is what the whole world is like, spiritually speaking. It's a desert place. And so in a sense, couldn't we say very, very accurately that the bread would have been more appealing to Jesus in the desert than the fruit was appealing to Adam in the garden? And yet here we encounter the second major difference. It's that Jesus wins. Jesus actually succeeds. He does not fail where Adam had failed. He does not succumb. He fulfills his obligation to God. Instead of caving to the serpent, he crushes him with the power of God's word. Three times we read in Matthew 4. Thus it is written, it is written, it is written. He responds to each one of the devil's taunts with God's word, showing that this is what life is all about. That I serve a covenant king and what he says goes no matter what. Adam didn't do that. But Jesus did. And through that faithfulness, through that obedience, Christ conquers death. And eventually he ascends to that place that Adam failed to attain on his own. He enters glory where he's now waiting for us. Yes, we can come too. We can get there too. But not because we could ever earn it. No, we're already guilty from day one. Because of Adam's sin. But because Christ earned it, now he can give it freely as a gift. 
Romans 5, 15 and 16. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by that grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. The free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. So I hope you see, friends, that the covenant of works lays the foundation for our understanding of what it means to be saved, or or, to put it another way, what Christ had to do to save us. He lived that perfect life that we're all required to live, but none of us ever can. And so you need to quit trying. You need to quit trying. Some of us here today are still silently banking on our performance to win God's favor. But that can only work if you're perfect. Paul says in Galatians 3, All who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of law and do them. If you're going to live by the law, you need to live by every single law, and you need to fulfill it perfectly, 100%. So, since we can't do that, you're cursed. But rather, Paul says, No one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous live by faith. Friends, that means... There, there are two ways to get to glory. One's hypothetical, one's actual. You could get to glory, hypothetically, by your own works, by earning it, by following, by following you know, what God laid out for Adam in, in the garden. If you obey, then, then I'm going to give you a reward. Or you get to heaven by believing in the only one who ever perfectly fulfilled that command, fulfilled that perfect life, and who is offering you heaven as a gift to be received by faith alone. Those are really the only two ways. Faith is what's necessary. Faith in the completed work of Christ. Do you believe that Jesus earned glory today? Do you have faith that he is enough? You need to know that that Adam's failure in the garden has exiled all all of us into the desert, into the wilderness. But there's a ticket out. There's a way to get from this desert place to something that's much better than a garden, to glory itself. And that ticket is the person of Jesus Christ. Are you believing on him today? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the promise of heaven attained by the perfection of Jesus Christ. And that uh, you do not leave us condemned uh, under our, our sin or, or the guilt that we have inherited through Adam. Rather, we turn in faith to the one who comes to make his blessings flow far as that curse is found. Give us hearts to believe on him and to rely on him and not to seek to do anything in our own strength to try to merit that which we could never earn, but rather to, to have hearts open wide to receive a gift that's freely given, namely justification leading to life evermore with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.